0: Listening to the Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages, we bring you the choicest medieval nonsense. Discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Cool. It's on my sticky note now. All right. Anyway, after yeah, I'll that, I'll probably cut out some of the lengthy, that, uh, lengthy preface. <laughs> <laughs> we are picking up with a travel narrative now, though.
1: Yes, yes we are. So, do you remember where we were... Other than Constantinople.
0: I remember we were in Constantinople and the guy had been rejected because he was seated further down along the bench. Yeah. He was making a big fuss about it and he was like, I have been disgraced that these barbarians are sitting in front of me and this is horrible and I am a bishop, but I don't act in a very Christian way. That's as, That's basically where I
1: remember we were. I mean, that... <laughs> Covers a lot of it, uh, or at least the general vibe. So in case anyone who is listening to this has forgotten, even though it's been much less time for you than it has for us, theoretically, for us. because ideally these episodes should only come out like two weeks apart.
0: He also hated the food. I remember he hated the food. He hated the food. Which, it had a lot of leeks and onions in it, so I think he just didn't like like Forever. onion-related foods.
1: It could be. But yeah, he's completely failing to make any sort of useful connection with the emperor, because the emperor is very stubborn about his military needs, which is Mm -hmm. why this particular emperor was not a very successful emperor. And equally, Liuprand, our narrator, is not very good at diplomacy.
0: No, he's not who I would have picked.
1: So where we're picking up, Liuprand is talking about (laughs) asses. Oh,
0: yes. (laughs) I remember
1: this. (laughs) And to be clear, I am talking about the donkey. What's just happened is he's been shown the prized wild asses in the, like, nature preserve. And he's like, no, he's like, oh, we, yes. we, they look just like the ones we have at home, except the ones we have at home carry stuff.
0: That's right. He was very excited about the comparison of who's got better asses. Yes. That's right.
1: And... We left off right after he had related a prophecy that says the lion and his whelp shall together exterminate the wild ass. Oh, yes. Yes. And he says that, like, okay, Nikephorus and the Eastern Romans slash Byzantines say that Nikephorus is the lion and King Otto, the leader of the Holy Roman Empire, is the whelp and that they together will defeat the Saracens. And Leopran right. doesn't think this is correct. Because he thinks that Otto and Nikephorus don't have anything in common, so they can't possibly be the lion and his whelp. Instead, he suggests that Otto and his son, also named Otto, are the lion and the whelp, and the ass that they will exterminate is the Eastern Roman Empire.
0: See, this is the problem with prophecies. Yes. You can just stick anybody's name in there and think that you are correct. And this is, again, this is what happens in Geoffrey of Monmouth as well. They take. You know, who is the dragon and who is the bear and blah, blah, blah. And they just shove some names in there and they're like, we were correct. And it's like, you know, do I say that hindsight is twenty twenty Do I dare?
1: I will. I choose to assume that the bear is Russia and the dragon is China. And Jeffrey of Monmouth just got a prophecy that was designed for someone else entirely.
0: That is the best interpretation of that that I've ever heard in my life.
1: <laughs> I cannot tell if that is sarcasm, but I'll take it.
0: No, it is very genuine. <laughs> I just like to picture Geoffrey of Monmouth, or, like, God is watching over Geoffrey, like, oh, no. I miss Oh, no, it's so much bigger than that. <laughs> oh, man.
1: Anyway. All right, so, picking up in his discourse on this prophecy, astronomers also make the same pronouncement as this in relation to yourselves and Mycethrys. It is truly wonderful. I have spoken with a certain astronomer who exactly described to me your figure and habits and those, sire, of your august namesake, and also told me of everything that has happened to me in the past, as though it had happened that day. There was not a single friend or enemy whom I thought of asking him about whose appearance, figure, and habits he could not describe. Which I feel like shows kind of the weakness of this astronomer and that he can apparently only tell Leoprand stuff that Leoprand already knows.
0: Yeah, that's that's a pretty bad astronomer.
1: I feel like there may be some leading questions and cold reads happening. here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every time someone talks about this stuff i remember the scene from the wizard of oz movie which is one of the movies i have seen oh where near the beginning when she's still in kansas dorothy goes to like a fortune teller and he's just like ah oh, close your eyes and think and then he looks in her bag
0: oh yes yes
1: i think Love that's that from one. that movie
0: i no, i think you're right it's also in the disney robin hood Where Robin, yeah, Robin reads Prince John's fortune. But since, you know, Robin knows what's going to happen and he's there to just steal all of all of the king's wealth, he just makes up a bogus prediction. And of course, Prince John loves it. And Robin is in like fortune jester drag, which is simultaneously hilarious, but also riffs off of the stereotype of gypsies, which I could get into on its own. Because gypsy culture is fascinating, but I won't. But it does it does play off of those tropes.
1: Or Roma, as we should probably say. Yes. The one in uh, The Wizard of Oz, he wasn't stealing from her. He was like just looking at her photos and stuff so he could like, I can see your aunt. So like, do you know? <laughs> it's as if there's a picture before me. Oh, I don't think lie. that's exactly the dialogue, but it was that kind of thing. That's amazing. The woman, she's, uh, she's wearing a, a polka dot dress. <laughs> her face is careworn. That's an inn. Yes, her uh, her name is Emily. That's right. Oh yes, he foretold every disaster that has occurred to me on this journey. So that's probably something new. Assuming he talked to this guy a while ago. Mm-hmm. Even though everything else he said may prove false, I pray that one thing be true. I mean, what he foretold you would do to Nykhefiris, i.e., exterminate him together with your son. Yes. Oh, may it come to pass. Oh, may it come to pass. That's not your recording, Skipping. He writes it twice. (laughs) Then I shall feel that all the wrongs I have suffered are as nothing. The aforesaid Hippolytus writes also, that not the Greeks, but the Franks, shall crush the Saracens. Encouraged by this prophecy, the Saracens three years ago engaged in battle in Sicilian waters, near Scylla and Charybdis, with the patrician Manuel, nephew of Nikephorus, They overcame his immense forces, and taking Manuel prisoner killed him, and hung up his headless corpse. As for his fellow admiral, a gentleman who was of neither gender... I really like that phrase, a gentleman who was of neither gender. That's, I uh, feel...
0: Anybody can be a gentleman.
1: Yeah. I just, I find it interesting that he's simultaneously saying, like, I don't see eunuchs as having a gender and using a gender term to describe one.
0: That's fair. Okay, he is, he is limited by the language of his time. That's true. To be fair.
1: And there might be some translation issues.
0: That's true. I I mean, it's fairly progressive that he's even mentioning that this individual doesn't have a gender.
1: Yeah, I I do like that we're clearly not dealing with what Dr. Hughes called the single gender system like the Vikings Mm -hmm. have, where you're either either a man or you're not a man. And those are your options. Whereas clearly, uh, this guy recognizes that there are not only qualities that make you not a man, but there are also separate qualities that make you become a woman. And so he can yes. say, like, that means there must be at least a third category who is neither a man nor a woman. And that's yes. how he describes eunuchs.
0: There we go. Which... Which is, can be a valid interpretation.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, it, it makes sense in the intellectual landscape in which he's living. And I would honestly be fascinated to hear some kind of uh, queer studies interpretation of all of this oh, yeah. uh, discourse.
0: Absolutely. Well, oh, And it's also fascinating to me that he does ascribe... The quality of gentlemanly nature, or at least that Mm -hmm. that gentleness, I'm losing the word, the respect that is given with the idea of being a gentleman is being ascribed to this individual, which is fascinating to me, because eunuchs are generally not as respected. It's not to say that they didn't have, you know, positions of power, but that they weren't necessarily respected for who they were.
1: Right. Like, you only give them respect if they have power over you and you have to.
0: Right. Right. Exactly.
1: But anyway, this gentleman who is of neither gender, the Saracens disdained to put him to death. They put him in chains. And after he was wasted by long years of imprisonment, they sold him for a price which no sane man would have given for a creature of his kind.
0: Oh, dear. We're
1: back to being (laughs) very not progressive. (laughs) You were so close. (laughs) Not only is he describing the slave trade and only criticizing, like, the prices, but he's also referring to a eunuch as a creature of this kind and saying they're not worth much. Oh,
0: jeez. How much of that is the translation, do you think?
1: I would really like to know.
0: That would be a really good question to answer. This is why it's so important as medievalists that we do, in as much as possible, go back and look at the original texts of these documents, because sometimes it drives me absolutely crazy that a lot of modern scholarship relies on unreliable translations. That just makes me so frustrated, because especially when, for instance, learning Latin was not a requirement of my MA, which I took a little bit of issue with, that there was no language requirement so i elected to do old english and middle english because i already have a fairly firm grasp of latin but i was really i was a little bit flabbergasted by some of the other people in the course who'd never done another language like this and i was thinking to myself how how can you trust the translations like wouldn't you want to go back and read the originals and that's not to drag my classmates in any way because they were doing brilliant research and they were looking up you know, the original language insofar as they needed it, depending on what their research was. But I think it's incredibly important to go back and look at the original text and not rely solely on translations. We need to have translations for sure to make it accessible, but you also need to look at the original.
1: This is why all translations should be published in parallel text editions.
0: This is so true.
1: So that the original is right there and you can go look yes. it up. Like, like you, can go, you can pull out a dictionary and you've already got what you need. I agree. Although, since this is a public domain translation, technically, if I could find the original text, I could put it into a parallel text edition without any copyright issues.
0: I mean,
1: an option. Yeah, let's put that on our our, our list of Patreon rewards. (laughs) Yes, (laughs)
0: parallel Parallel text text editions
1: of some of our public domain translations.
0: Yes, there we go.
1: Anyway, back to the Saracens. Encouraged by this same prophecy, they soon afterwards attacked the general... Exicantes, with equal resolution, and putting him to flight completely destroyed his army. Another reason also compelled Nykephorus to lead his army against the Assyrians at this moment. By the will of God, this year a famine had so wasted all the Greek territory that one gold piece did not purchase two of our Pavian measures of corn. A couple things to note there. First of all, if you speak American English exclusively, you should know that when non-Americans say corn, they don't mean maize like we do. They can and often do use it in its older sense, which just means grain in general, as mm-hmm. it's frequently used in medieval texts. Yes. He does not have maize. That is a new world nice. crop. It is not available.
0: <laughs> we don't He's have talking
1: about probably wheat.
0: And do we know how much measurement this is?
1: I do not. You could probably look up how they measured corn in medieval Pavia, but mm-hmm. it's not something we could just quickly Google. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to bring up relating to this is we've talked about this already. Nikephorus's focus on funding the military and not funding anything else did That's in right. fact lead to a famine during his rule. Yes. As God will, apparently. Yeah. So this is absolutely not the just being shitty. There really is a famine and it actually is Nikephorus's fault. Mm-hmm. Or possibly the will of God. Or both. Both. Anyway, one gold piece did not purchase two of our pavian measures of corn, and this in the very realm of plenty. This misfortune, in which field mice played their part, presumably by eating the grain. I was gonna say. (laughs) (laughs) Nycephorus increased by collecting for himself at harvest time all the available corn and paying the wretched owners a very low price for it. In the Mesopotamian district, where there was an absence of mice, the crops were abundant. And the amount of corn he got from there equaled the amount of the sands of the sea. As the result of this mean transaction, famine raged shamefully everywhere. And so he brought together 80,000 men under pretense of a military expedition, and for one whole month went on selling for two gold pieces what he had bought for one. As you do. Yeah. I don't know whether that's accurate. He may have just bought it all up so he could feed his soldiers, which again was his priority, but... It is also possible that he made some money in speculation.
0: I was going to say, when you have a monopoly on grain like that, you can
1: charge what you want. These, my master, are the reasons which compelled Nycatharys to lead his forces against the Assyrians just at that moment. And what forces? They are not really men. They are dummies.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, this
1: is another thing. I really want to know what the original word was like. Is he talking about mannequins or is he just calling them stupid? That would be a wonderful thing to know. Their tongues are saucy, but cold are their hands in war. And according to the footnote, cold are their hands in war is a quote from the Aeneid.
0: Oh, I like that. All right.
1: Myciferus did not look for quality in them, but only for quantity. How dangerous this will be for him, he will learn to his sorrow. When his unwarlike host, relying only on its size, shall be put to flight by a handful of our men who have both knowledge and appetite for fighting. That's a valid criticism. When you were besieging Bari, not more than 300 Hungarians laid hands on 500 Greeks near Thessalonica and hauled them off into Hungary. Their success induced 200 Hungarians in Macedonia, not far from Constantinople, to attempt a similar feat. But 40 of them, retiring carelessly along a narrow pass, were taken prisoners. These men, Nikephorus has released from prison, and dressing them in the most costly garments has made them his bodyguards and defenders to go with him against the Assyrians. What sort of army it is you can infer from this fact. The chief officers come from Venice and Amalfi. I don't know what we're (laughs) meant to infer from that.
0: (laughs) That's something. I love these moments in medieval texts when they state something that is so obvious to them that we have absolutely zero context for.
1: Right? I'm not even sure where Amalfi is, much less why they would be a bad source of military officers.
0: Amalfi's in Italy. I'm guessing that if you want to project into sort of a little bit of Renaissance Venice, because I I know a bit more about Renaissance Venice than I do about medieval Venice, is they were known for their luxury. And as I Mm -hmm. always like to say, Venice has been a tourist trap since about 1500, probably before, basically since the Crusades. So they had like a really great little navy in the Crusades, and then they sort of fizzled out. So I'm guessing his point is here that it's rather luxurious, and that these are kind of weak willed generals who are more interested in having flashy armor than any sort of actual battle prowess.
1: I don't know any difference. So I can't argue with that. <laughs> I will just take that as a reasonable interpretation. There we go. But I must resume my story and tell you what happened to me next. On the 27th of July, at Umbria, outside Constantinople, I received permission from Nikephorus to return to you.
0: Oh, hooray! The best part of this story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) On my arrival at Constantinople, however, I was told by the patrician Christopher, the eunuch who represented Nikephorus there, that I could not start just then. The Saracens were holding the sea, he said, and the Hungarians the land. I should have to wait till they retired. Both of his statements, alas, were lies.
0: (laughs) I feel like that's a bit iffy. I mean, how are we to know? I don't know.
1: (laughs) Did you check?
0: Yeah, like, are you sure that there's not actually a war going on? Because that might have actually been a problem for you, (laughs) sir. (laughs) Right?
1: Right.
0: It's like, the, these travel bans aren't valid. I don't know what they're talking about. He's just not letting me come home for Thanksgiving. <laughs> I don't get it.
1: <laughs> the next thing was that guards were set to prevent myself and my companions from leaving our house. The poor of Latin speech, who came to me for alms, they seized and slew, or put in prison. They would not allow our Greek interpreter to go out, even to buy supplies. And so our cook had to go, although he knew no Greek and could only speak to the vendor when he bought from him, with signs on his fingers or nods of his head instead of words. He bought for four shillings, about as much food as the interpreter got for one. I assume it didn't say shillings in the original.
0: I I would presume so. This is a fairly common occurrence. If you've been a tourist in a place where you don't speak their language, you're gonna get ripped off.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: It happens.
1: Especially if it's a place where haggling is part of the culture.
0: Very, very true. Yeah, if you ever visit China and you go to any of the street vendors, always haggle.
1: I'm making a note to not go to China. I hate haggling.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. They expect you to haggle. It's part of their culture. Mm-mm, no good. If you pay full price, then they're happy.
1: <laughs> anyway, some of my friends sent me spices, bread, wine, and fruit. They, the guards, flung everything on the ground and drove the messengers away with their backs loaded with blows. Oof. I'm skeptical about this description. Yeah.
0: Of so like am I, the but... guards
1: just being gratuitously horrible. Castmac <laughs> is clearly not considering that perhaps all guards are bad. Back- Had not God's pity prepared before me a table against my adversaries, I should have had to accept the death they devised for me. But he who permitted me to be thus tried mercifully gave me power to endure. Such were the trials and tribulations I suffered at Constantinople from the 4th of June until the 2nd of October, a period of 120 days.
0: Oh, yes, because he was literally scraping it into the walls in his agony for being there in his palace.
1: (laughs) To increase my calamities! On the day of the Assumption of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Mother of God, an ill-omened embassy came from the apostolic and universal Pope John, with a letter asking Nikephorus, quote, the Emperor of the Greeks, unquote. It is actually printed with quotation marks, although I'm sure those weren't in the original. Oh, for sure. To conclude an alliance and firm friendship with his beloved and spiritual son, Otto, quote, August Emperor of the Romans, unquote. If you ask me why these words and manner of address which to the Greeks seem sinful audacity. (laughs) He's such a drama queen. Well, I mean, he's also kind of right there in that the people of the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, or whatever you want to call them, probably are a little upset about the Pope calling someone else august emperor of the Romans.
0: That's true. That's fair.
1: If you ask me why these words and manner of address, which to the Greeks seem sinful audacity... Did not cost the bearer his life and overwhelm it even before they were read, I cannot answer. On other points, I have often shown a fine and copious flow of words. On this, I am as dumb as a fish.
0: A metaphor which should be brought back into common parlance.
1: The Greeks abused the sea, cursed the waves, and wondered exceedingly how they could have transported such an iniquity and why the deep had not opened to swallow up the ship. The audacity of it, they cried, to call the universal Emperor of the Romans the one and only Nikephorus, the Great, the August, quote, Emperor of the Greeks, unquote, and to style a poor barbaric creature, quote, Emperor of the Romans, unquote. <laughs> o oh, sky O oh, Earth O oh, sea What shall we do with these scoundrels and criminals? They are paupers, and if we kill them, we pollute our hands with vile blood. They are ragged, they are slaves, they are peasants. If we beat them, we disgrace not them but ourselves. They are not worthy of our gilded Roman scourge, or of any punishment of that kind. Would that one of them were a bishop and the other a marquess! Then we would sew them in a sack, and after giving them a sound beating with rods and plucking out their beards and hair, we would throw them into the sea. As for these fellows, their lives may be spared, but they shall be kept in close custody Until Dicephorus, the sacred emperor of the Romans, be informed of these insults.
0: Oh my.
1: I'm going to assume that Leuprand is making this up. That this is not, in fact, what what the people of Constantinople said about these messengers.
0: This seems like he's basically saying, you should go to war. Mm -hmm. Let me just goad you into it, sir.
1: (laughs) Probably. I'm sure he'd love that.
0: Oh, gosh.
1: He's leaning very hard on, like, this guy sucks, and you should get rid of him.
0: Yeah, this is ridiculous. Oh, yes, I'm supposed to bring peace between our two nations.
1: But have you considered that I hate this guy, and you should (laughs) kill him?
0: (laughs) But he sucks, man, and his food sucks, too. It's
1: covered in fish sauce. Uh, Which does sound terrible, but that's just me.
0: I mean, Worcestershire. Never had it. Really?
1: I just put hot sauce on everything.
0: Okay, that is... Yeah, you are from the South. I'll let that one go. (laughs) Hot sauce is always a valid, valid topping. Thank you.
1: When I heard of this, I considered them happy in their poverty, myself unhappy in my riches. At home, my own desire excused my lack of wealth. In Constantinople, fear taught me that I had the gold of Croesus. Poverty had always seemed burdensome. But then it appeared light, acceptable, desirable, in any case desirable since it saved its votaries from death, its followers from the whip. But since at Constantinople alone, poverty thus defends its children, may it there alone be cherished. The Pope's envoys were therefore put in prison, and the offensive letter sent to Nicephorus in Mesopotamia. No one returned with an answer from him until the 12th, I can't say that word. 12th? <laughs> of September. And then I was not informed of it's, unusual word choice there true two days later that is on the 14th of september by dint of prayers and bribes i secured permission to adore the cross that gives us life and salvation
0: i like how he's very upfront about this (laughs) by prayers and also bribes yeah
1: (laughs) but i mean he is asking to see a very important relic so i guess bribery might just be part of that
0: i guess it's part of the culture
1: I am 100% assuming that by, like, the, the cross that gives us light, life and salvation, he is referring to, like, that chunk of the true cross, quote-unquote, yeah. that uh, Constantinople had at the time. That would make sense. For those of you who don't know, Constantinople had, like, a beam of wood, which they said was one of the two pieces of wood that made up the true cross. At various points, it went back and forth between there and Jerusalem, depending on how the crusades were going.
0: Yeah, back and forth. Ping-ponging relics.
1: Amid the noisy crowd, some persons approached me unnoticed by my guards and cheered my sad heart with words of furtive consolation. On the 17th of September, however, though I was but halfway between life and death, I was summoned to the palace. The patrician eunuch Christopher, with three other officials, was there. And when I arrived, he rose to his feet and gave me a courteous reception. Their discourse began as follows. The pallor of your face... The emaciation of your whole body, the unusual length of your hair and beard, all reveal the immense pain that is in your heart because the date of your return to your master has been delayed. But be not angry with the sacred emperor, we pray, nor yet with us. The cause of your delay is this. The Pope of Rome, if indeed he may be called Pope when he has held communion and ministry with Alberic's son, the apostate, the adulterer, the sacrilegious has sent letter to our most sacred emperor, calling him emperor of the Greeks and not of the Romans. And here the translator has decided to use a French word instead of an English word. But I'm oh, going to anglicize it. Certainly, this has been done at your master's <laughs> instigation. Why?
0: Why did he pick that word of all words? Okay, whatever. I
1: assume it was just <sighs> part of like the dialect of the upper crust in Victorian England. That you would say, I'm going to see if I can do it right, Sertemont, instead of certainly.
0: Oh my gosh. It's so pretentious. Incredibly,
1: yes. (laughs) What's this I hear? Said I to myself. I am lost. Assuredly, now I shall be marched off straight into court. Listen, they continued. We know you mean to tell us that the Pope is the most stupid of men. I do not say so, interposed I. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Listen, the silly blockhead of a pope does not. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I can't. I like the phrase, the silly blockhead of a pope.
0: That's, I mean, peak.
1: (laughs) Does not know that the sacred Constantine transferred to this city the imperial scepter, the senate, and all the Roman knighthood, like the Romans had knights. Oh boy. But, I mean, I guess well, that's, I mean, like, the modern equivalent to, like, the military aristocracy, but still.
0: They did have the equestrians, basically.
1: Yeah, which is... So. I can I can see deciding to translate equestrian as knight.
0: It sort of counts. It's where we get knights from.
1: I can give them that. But it's still silly. Right. And all the Roman knighthood. And left in Rome, nothing but vile slaves, fishermen, confectioners, poulterers, bastards plebeians, underlings. Oh my. Confectioners? I don't know why that's on the list. Like, pastry makers? Cake makers? I guess that's the only meaning I know for that word.
0: Huh. Okay.
1: But I I find it interesting that the eunuch is trying to make the point here that, like, look, when we moved to Constantinople, we took all the good stuff and all the good people out of Rome, and so we're still the Romans, even though we're not in Rome anymore.
0: I mean, the argument rages on to this day.
1: He never would have written this letter if your king had not suggested it. And how dangerous for both of them it will be. Unless they come to their senses, the immediate future will show. But the Pope, said I, in his noble simplicity, thought that in writing, thus he was honoring the emperor, not insulting him. We know, of course, that Constantine, the Roman emperor, came here with the Roman knighthood and called the city he founded by his own name. But as you have changed your language, customs, and dress, because they were speaking Greek by this time, not Latin, Mm -hmm. the most holy pope thought that the name of the Romans, like their dress, would displease you. If life be granted him, he will make this plain in his future letters. Their superscription shall be this. John, the Roman pope, to Nikephorus, Constantine, and Basilius, the great and august emperors of the Romans. Mark, pray, why I said this.
0: Oh boy. Okay, because now he's going to give a justification. Let's go.
1: Nikephorus came to his high place on the throne by perjury and adultery. (laughs) (laughs) It was kind of a soft coup.
0: I was going to say, is there actual historical evidence to this?
1: I think we talked about his accession to the throne a little bit on the last version, but long story short, he got in because he married the wife of the previous emperor.
0: Yeah, who had died. Yeah, that's
1: right. And so he's technically co emperor with her two sons, who are also the sons of the previous emperor. Mm-hmm. But since they're too young to rule, he's the one in charge. That's right. Before now, he was just a general. Mm-hmm. Since the welfare of all Christians is a matter of anxiety to the Pope of Rome, let the Lord Pope send to Nikephorus a letter, like in all respects to those sepulchres, which without are whited, within are full of dead men's bones. Let him in that letter show him how by perjury and adultery he has obtained the rule over his masters. Let him then invite him to a synod. And if he will not come, let him be smitten with the papal anathema. If the superscription be not as I have said, the letter will never reach him. I'm not sure I follow that, but I assume it has more political relevance that I'm not aware of.
0: Seems correct. It's like you're not going to get the letter. Like it won't be delivered.
1: I like the metaphor that like... You have to make it look nice on the outside, even if it's all death on the inside.
0: I mean, that's all politics ever, right? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Now let me return to my narrative. When the aforesaid princes heard my undertaking about the address on the letter— that would be the sons of the previous emperor, uh, the stepsons of Tycheferis— they said, not suspecting any guile, "'We thank you, Sir Bishop. It becomes your wisdom to act as mediator in these important matters.' You are the only one of the Franks for whom we now feel any esteem. But when at your bidding, they have corrected their mistakes, we will love them also. As for yourself, when you return to us, you shall not go away unrewarded. Given the eloquence of that, I'm now going to see if I can find out how old these kids are.
0: (laughs) He really does put a touch of eloquence and poetry into all of these, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, and like, if they're teenagers, then maybe. But Mm -hmm. if they're like nine, then no. No. All right, so this is the year 968. The kids will both later be emperors, by the way. One is Basil II, and one is Constantine VIII. Okay. We're in 968, then Basil II is 10 years old.
0: Okay.
1: Oh, wow. And Constantine VIII is eight.
0: Oh, my. Very
1: eloquent. He's telling us that elementary school-aged children made that speech. Oof. "'If ever I return here of my own accord,' I said to myself, "'may Nikephorus give me a crown and a golden scepter.' "'But tell us,' they continued, "'does your most sacred master wish to confirm friendship with the emperor by a marriage treaty?' "'When I came here he wished it,' I replied. "'But during my long stay here he has received no letter from me, "'and he thinks that you have made a faux pas and put me in prison (laughs) as a captive. "'He is burning with rage, like a lion is robbed of her whelps!'
0: Again, he's speaking to a
1: ten-year-old and an eight-year-old. Oh, gosh. And will not rest until he has taken vengeance in just wrath. He hates the idea of a marriage and is only anxious to pour out his anger upon you. Yeah. If he tries to do that, they answered, neither Italy will protect him, nor his native land of Saxony, that poverty-stricken country where the people dress in skins, with our money, which gives us power. We will rouse the whole world against him, and we will break him in pieces like a potter's vessel, which when broken cannot be put into shape again. And since we think that you have bought some cloaks in his honor, we order them now to be produced. Those that are fit for you shall be marked with a leaden seal and left in your possession. Those that are prohibited to all nations, except to us Romans, shall be taken away, and their price returned. Again, ten years old.
0: Oh my gosh. This is ridiculous. I I am
1: skeptical that this is a conversation he actually had at the Prince's. Yeah. Although, given the next section, I have no doubt that someone did in fact uh, interfere with him taking cloaks home because he has some stuff to say about it.
0: Oh boy. The drama of it all.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thereupon, they took from me five very valuable pieces of purple cloth. Considering yourself... And all the Italians, Saxons, Franks, Bavarians, Swabians, nay, all nations, as unworthy to appear abroad in such ornate vestments. How improper and insulting is it that these soft, effeminate creatures with their long sleeves and hoods and bonnets, idle liars of neither gender, should go about in purple, while heroes like yourselves, men of courage, skilled in war, full of faith and love, submissive to God, full of virtues, may not. But where is your emperor's word, I said? Where is the imperial promise? When I said farewell to him, I asked him up to what price he would allow me to buy vestments in honor of my church. He replied, Buy any that you like, and as many as you like. In thus fixing quality and quantity, he clearly did not make a distinction, as if he had said, accepting this and that. His brother Leo, the marshal of the palace, can bear me witness. So can the interpreter... I- there are too many vowels in a row for the in this name. Odysseus
0: Oh, my.
1: It's a E-U-O at the beginning.
0: Ew. Yep, that's interesting.
1: And John, and Romanus. I can testify to it myself. For even without the interpreter, I understood what the emperor said. But these stuffs are prohibited, they replied. And when the emperor spoke as you say he did, he could not imagine that you would ever dream of such things as these. Oh, no. I know, So they're
0: fighting over clothes. He's like, but these are my fancy purple priestly robes. And they're like, no, you can't wear that. It's too expensive.
1: Well, only the emperor gets to wear purple and his household, I guess. Makes sense, I guess. Oh, no. And this is why that rule apparently applies even outside of Constantinople, because the, again, children go on to say... As we surpass all other nations in wealth and wisdom, so it is right that we should surpass them in dress. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiled brats. Those who are unique in the grace of their virtue should also be unique in the beauty of their raiment.
0: Okay, I feel like we need to interject here and say that this is not an outlandish idea. In the Middle Ages, there were certain things that you could and could not wear based on your stature. in Sumptuary laws, yeah. Yes. Yes. So I know doctors had these really round, black, wide brim hats. So if you've ever seen a a picture of like a plague doctor with the little beak and the mask, they also usually wear big black hats. And that was their sort of position. That was their uniform. But there were other things like you couldn't wear ermine if you weren't a marquee or whatever. There were different fabrics that you could wear, different colors you could wear, different furs that you could or couldn't wear. And so that's where you sort of – you even see this in Victorian culture of, well, a gentleman always wears a hat. That's where Mm -hmm. that comes from. It's a sign of status.
1: Yeah, And this even crept over in, like, fixed legal forms to the New World because the pilgrims had sumptuary laws. Because they were very strict and puritanical because, you know, they're Puritans. And coming along with that is – You can't wear that unless you're virtuous, where virtuous and powerful in society mean the same thing, because that's Mm -hmm. what you get in insular religious communities.
0: When you do have church and state together, your virtue is signaled by how you dress. It's a very foreign concept to us as Americans, but we still do this, and this goes back to ideas about semiotics and stuff, it's like when you wear a certain type of clothing you're signaling something about yourself we do this all the time, we just have a different way of looking at it than they did it also isn't in the law per se,
1: here. And the, the tie between virtue and status was very clear in the middle ages Like mm-hmm. the same thoughts that you see in like in America, I think we only have it in like prosperity gospel churches mm-hmm. that idea that if, if you're wealthy it's because God loves you yeah.
0: Oh my god. Like that
1: was that was standard in the Middle Ages and questioning it was a big part of the heresy that got all the Cathars uh wiped out in the Albigensian Crusades. Mm-hmm. By the way, we've got to do do some something about the Albigensian Crusades. Not like we mm-hmm. have to go fix the problem, but we have to have an episode <laughs> on it.
0: So we just can't stand it any longer. <laughs> I mean,
1: it was, like, one of the more horrific crimes that the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages perpetuated. Oh, for sure. Because the the Cathars were, by all accounts, very nice people mm-hmm. and mostly got in trouble because they dared to preach an egalitarian gospel.
0: How dare they? Don't they know that the Pope is in charge? Well, those fancy clothes. But anyway, point is, what looks to be on its face a big upset about... Oh my gosh, you're wearing purple, you're not allowed to wear purple, is actually a clash of culture, and it's also a way for this ambassador to stand up in the face of basically the enemy and say, No, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna abide by your laws because I'm not from your this place. And he's actually making a political stance at the same time as he's making a fashion decision.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Fashion is politics in the Middle Ages.
1: Oh, and if, if anyone thinks I was overstating the horrors of the Albigensian Crusades there, just a little teaser for when we finally get to them. Oh, boy. The Catholic Church during that campaign is the origin of the phrase, kill them all, let God sort them out.
0: Oh, I remember this. Oh, gosh. I hate that.
1: Okay, so now Leucrant is speaking regarding this, uh, this prohibition. Such garments can hardly be called unique, I said when with us, streetwalkers and conjurers wear them. Where do you get them from, they asked? From Venetian and Amalfian traders, I replied, who by bringing them to us, support life by the food we give them. They shall not do so any longer, they answered. They shall be searched, and if okay. any cloth of this kind be found on them, they shall be punished for the beating, and have their hair clipped close. Oof. In the time of the Emperor Constantine of blessed memory, I said... I came here not as bishop, but as deacon. Not sent by an emperor or king, but by the Marquess Berengar. Uh, this is not Constantine, Constantine, as you may have gathered by the fact that one of the that the younger of these children becomes Constantine the Eighth. There have been several Constantines. Yes. And he spoke to the the most recent, which he does cover in his other longer text, which we may do at some point. Ooh. Okay. This other longer text is like a history of a long, like, political conflict, and one of the episodes within it is his visit to the court of Constantine. Ah! Oh. I then bought many more vestments of greater value than those I have bought now, and they were not inspected and scrutinized by the Greeks, nor yet stamped with a leaden seal. Now, having become a bishop by the mercy of God, and having been sent as envoy by the magnificent emperors Otto and Otto, father and son, I am treated with ignominy. My vestments are marked after the manner of the Venetians, and any of them that seem of value are taken from me, though they are being transported for use in the church entrusted to my care. Are you not weary of insulting me, or rather, my masters, for whose sake I am thus scorned? Is it not enough that I was given into custody, tortured by hunger and thirst, and not allowed to return to them, but detained here until now? Must you also, as one final insult to them, "'Rob me of things that are honestly mine. "'At least only take away what I purchased. "'Leave me what was presented as a gift by friends.' "'To that they replied. "'The Emperor Constantine was a mild man, "'who always stayed in his palace, "'and by peaceful methods, won the friendship of all the world. "'The Emperor Nicephorus, on the other hand, "'shuns the palace as if it were the plague. "'We call him a man of contention, and almost a lover of strife. "'He does not win people's friendship by offering them money.' He subdues them to his sway by terror and the sword. Oh wow! These kids, which again, in fact, accurate.
0: True, true. <laughs> why? Okay, why did he pick these kids to be the voice of? I this don't know. <laughs> what, Like why?
1: <laughs> like am I? Did I misread? This? No.
0: No, these are the kids.
1: Yeah, it yeah, definitely started by saying the aforesaid princes.
0: Oh man.
1: This was right after he mentioned the kids. Yeah. It's not like he's talking about other princes.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And that you may realize in what esteem we hold your royal masters, we shall treat gifts and purchases in the same way. Every purple vestment you have acquired must be returned to us. Having done and said these things, they gave me a letter written and sealed with gold to bring to you. But even that, in my opinion, was not worthy of your greatness. They brought also another dispatch sealed with silver and said... We think it improper for your pope to receive a letter from our emperor, but the marshal of the court, the emperor's brother, sends him an, an epistle which is good enough for him, by you and not by his pauper envoys, and warns him that unless he comes to his senses, he will find that he is completely ruined. After I had received the letter, they bade me farewell, and sent me off with many... Sh- yep, that's what that says. Oh no. And sent me off with many sweet and loving kisses.
0: Whoa, wait.
1: Yeah, that was a 180.
0: <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't make any sense, unless it's like the cultural, like, mwah, mwah, both sides of the cheek.
1: I, I imagine, but also, like, uh, just the choice of the phrase sweet and loving. So I would expect it to be more, like, perfunctory. Yeah. Or maybe this is, like, maybe this is the only accurate part, and they were acting like children instead of, like, princes for a moment.
0: I guess this just seems very weird because it's like our emperor is gonna crush you guys. Also, mwah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although I mean, kids are weird. Kids will turn on a dime like that. But I don't know, man. It's this true. seems
1: very strange. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna accept that happened. I'm just gonna leave that one there. But as I went, they dispatched another message, right worthy of themselves, but not of me. To the effect that they would supply horses for myself and my suite, but not for my baggage. Consequently, to my great and natural annoyance, I had to give my guide a present worth 50 gold pieces as an extra fee. I had no other means of repaying Nycephras for his misconduct. So I wrote the following verses upon the wall of my hateful house. <laughs> and also upon a wooden table.
0: Oh my gosh. He's actually... this is This is like... University kids drawing in the bathroom stalls, except he's just doing it in this palace.
1: Yeah, exactly. Except his is longer.
0: Oh, here we go. It's
1: it's not just here I sit brokenhearted. It's a whole page. Oh boy, let's go. Also, the uh, translator has made sure it rhymes. God bless him. Trust not the Greeks. They live but to betray, nor heed their promises whatever they say. If lies will serve them any oath they swear... And when it's time to break it, feel no fear. That is a slant rhyme. That's not even a slant (laughs) rhyme. That's just, it looks like a rhyme, but it's not. Mm -mm. This lofty marble house with windows wide that has no well and cannot shade provide against the sun but lets in cold and heat was for four summer months my sole retreat. I, Lupran, from far Cremona came, The great town that bears Constantine's name, a messenger of peace with my great lord, the emperor Otto had with fire and sword, gone up to conquer Bari, and in haste wrought havoc and laid all the country waste. He yielded to my prayers, the victory won, for lying Greece had promised to his son, her princess as a bride, ah would that she had not been born, nor this land e'er seen me. And then I should not have endured the spite of him who now refuses to unite his stepchild with our prince. The time draws near when Mars, by furies driven, will appear and banish peace unless God bars his way. Fair peace, for whom the whole world sighs today. And if he comes, all blame I shall decline. The fault, Nikephorus, the fault is thine. End of oh,
0: wow. <laughs> I think all politics should be done in verse. I agree. This is my official stance.
1: (laughs) I will add it to the list right next to uh, throwing politicians into the sea.
0: Yes, there we go.
1: (laughs) I forget when we did. I think that might have been during the uh, Tang Dynasty episode, but.
0: I think so. Well, we've got quite the list of reforms to make to our political system.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Most of it being let's make politics harder.
0: Yes. So this guy wrote a poem on a table or the wall? Both. Both. Both is good.
1: I don't know if he wrote it twice or like if he ran out of space on the wall and continued on the table, but he just said, I wrote it on the wall and also upon a wooden table.
0: Wow. Dedication. Yeah. I mean, that is a very
1: good way to get killed, in my opinion. I want to know how long that took. Like, did he have it composed and ready to go? Or did he, like, have to stop and think as he was carving it into the wall? Or, like, what happened there?
0: I feel like this has been an ongoing passion project for him. He's had several months to contemplate all of his <laughs> hatred for Nisephorus. Like, he's just, he's been workshopping this thing. And finally, he's going, he's leaving, and he's like, I'm going to give them one final gift. <laughs>
1: I'm also just assuming it's carved and not, like, written in charcoal or something, because that seems...
0: Oh, it's way more dramatic. I would carve
1: it. Yeah, it's gotta be carved.
0: Oh, yeah. It would take longer, but it would be worth it.
1: After writing these lines, on the 2nd of October, I went on board my boat and left the city that was once so rich and prosperous, and is now such a starveling, a city full of lies, tricks, perjury, and greed, rapacious, avaricious, vainglorious. My guide was with me. And after 49 days of ass-riding, walking, horse-riding, fasting, thirsting, sighing, weeping, and groaning... Oh, wow. (laughs) I arrived at Naupactus, N-A-U-Pactus, which is a city of Nicopolis. Nicopolis? No idea. There my guide deserted me after putting us on two small ships and committing us to two imperial messengers who were to bring me by sea to Otranto. Which I know is a real place, but also I just assume that it means he's going into the genre of gothic horror for a bit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, if we haven't had
1: enough already. Their commission, however, did not give them the right of obtaining supplies from the Greek princes, who everywhere treated them with score, and we fed them, rather than they us. So apparently uh, they have to carry two of Nikephras' messengers, but <laughs> the messengers weren't provided supplies, so they also have to pay for the messenger's passage and room and board.
0: Oh my gosh, Nicephorus really has not been a very good host, even to his own people.
1: No, no, he's there's a reason his reign is short, and I think it ends with him being stabbed in the face. How often, in my indignation, did I not think of Terence's line? Terence is not just a name; it's like a classical poet. Yes. In case anyone is like, "Who's Terence?" Because it's, it sounds like a name that, like, a regular person would have.
0: <laughs> He's like, I remember Terrence, that guy.
1: Well, I mean, I have the same problem with Horace. I'm always like, oh, who's Horace? Does he live? Oh, no, you mean that Horace. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also know of Virgil, but I feel like that one, you think of the poet first.
0: I think so. He's reached a little bit more popular acclaim.
1: But anyway, Terrence's line, those whom you have sent to help us need themselves a helper too.
0: That's a great line, actually. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really it's great bad. line.
1: <laughs> anyway, on the 23rd of November, then, I left Naupactus and in two days reached the river Fidari, my companions not remaining on the ships, which could not hold them, but walking along the shore, which seems very inhospitable as a thing to make your, your companions do. Like, you can't ride in the boat, you have to walk along the side.
0: I mean, I feel like he's referring to Nicephorus's people, though, so...
1: I mean, probably, it's still a big move. It is. Because, like, they were on the ships before, clearly there's room.
0: Yeah, but, you know, the new produce takes precedence. I guess.
1: From where we were on the Fedari, we could see Patras eight miles away on the opposite coast this place of apostolic suffering which we had visited with our prayers on our way up to constantinople we now omitted i confess my fault to visit with prayers a second time my unspeakable longing to return to you my august lords and masters and my desire to see you again was the cause of my weakness indeed if it had not been for that desire i think i should have died there and then
0: drama right i mean he just wants to go home i understand that feeling you are home. <laughs> True, but I've been wanting to go home.
1: <laughs> A south wind rose up against me, madman that I was, disturbing the sea to its lowest depths by its gusts. It did this for several days and nights in succession. And on the 30th of November, the day of Andrew's passion, I realized that my sin was the cause of the trouble.
0: I was going to say, this is what you get for not paying your homage. Right.
1: Right. Also, he still has, like, a few pages to go just talking about the way back, which seems excessive, but...
0: Yeah, but he's he's gotta lengthen out the drama for how much
1: he wants to go home. But we're on page 272 and it ends on 277, so it's not much longer. All right. The people of the country were planning to murder us and seize our goods. The sea was raging fiercely and prevented our escape. So turning to the church before my eyes, I said with tears and lamentation, the brand is fixin' to pray for a full minute, so if you find that boring or obnoxious, you might want to hit the skip button a couple times. O oh, holy apostle Andrew, I am the servant of thy fellow fisherman, brother, and fellow apostle Simon Peter. It was not from distaste or from pride that I avoided the place of thy passion. I was tormented by love for my august masters and by their command to return home. If my sin has stirred thee to wrath... Let the merit of my august masters incline thee to mercy. Thou hast nothing to bestow on thy brother. Bestow something on the emperors who show their love for thy brother by clinging to him who knows all things. Thou knowest with what labor and toil, with what vigils and at what cost they have saved the Roman church of thy brother Apostle Peter from the hands of the ungodly, and have enriched, honored, and exalted it, and restored it to its proper condition. If my works have brought me into danger, let their merit save me. And let not those whom thy aforesaid brother in the faith and in the flesh, Peter, the chief apostle of the apostles, wishes to rejoice and prosper, have cause for sorrow in this matter. Sorrow, I mean, for myself, who am their envoy. Truly, my masters and august emperors, this is not flattery. Here's another idiom. I'm not even sure what it means. Ooh, let's go. This is not flattery, nor do I sew pillows under my arms. What? <laughs> Right?
0: What does that mean? Like, like, like a cape? Or like he's gonna fly or something? He's like, it's like when pigs fly?
1: I was thinking of them as like, like he's floating on them. Like, like they're sewed onto like his... (laughs) I don't know.
0: That's weird. Let's see if this is a
1: Victorianism.
0: It's gotta be, right?
1: I mean, it might also be a direct translation.
0: But what... I'm not sewing pillows under my arms or anything, but oh my Ah, gosh.
1: Googling it gets several results. Oh, most of which are this. This,
0: Yes. Yeah, that checks out. A couple aren't
1: though. So let's see if I can figure out what it is from there. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I have no idea. Um,
0: Well, listeners, if you've been able to figure it out, Let us know, because we're just stumped by this one.
1: The thing, I repeat, is true. After two days, through your merits, I assume because he, like, prayed invoking the name of the emperor, and now he says, like, "Ah, this is because of the emperor's merits that it worked. The sea grew calm and became so tranquil that when our sailors deserted us, we sailed the ship ourselves the 140 miles to Leucas. L-E-U-C-A-S. I don't know how to say that. Well,
0: you could, yeah, I guess it makes sense.
1: Suffering no danger or discomfort, except a little difficulty at the mouth of the river Achelous, where its strong current is beaten back by the sea waves. How, most mighty emperors, will you repay God for all that he did for you in my case? I will tell you. This is God's will and demand, and although he can do it without your help, he wishes you to be his instruments in the matter. Oh, well, this
0: guy's got opinions.
1: Yeah, he's like, God told me.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: He himself gives what is offered to him, and he keeps what he claims from us in order to crown his work. Attend to me, then, pray. Nikephoros, who loves to harm all churches, out of the abundance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. I mean, to be fair, he's, I don't think he's helping anybody here.
1: Right. Also, Nikephoros is, in fact, both in this text and in, like, the history books, A very pious person. He's just part of the Eastern Orthodox instead of the Catholic. I don't think the split has been formalized yet, but like, it exists on an informal basis, at least.
0: Yeah, true. He just doesn't seem like a great, very pious person, regardless.
1: Luthander or or Nikephorus? Nikephorus. Ah, but he is. There is, in fact, a famous story that... He almost didn't take the emperorship because he was planning to be- to retire to a monastery. And apparently he wore a hair shirt, like, right up until his accession to the purple.
0: Oh, wow. So this guy's just talking out of his ass.
1: Yeah. Also, in earlier in the text, he described a religious procession that Nikephorus was, like, front and center at.
0: Oh, true. But, I mean, kings would do that all the time. Yeah. For the will of the people. You can't necessarily imply that someone's very you know, pious due to that.
1: That's true. But yeah, Nikephorus is does not love to harm all churches. He's just, you know, Eastern Orthodox instead of Catholic.
0: Yeah, he just has or disagreements whatever. with your version of it.
1: Yeah, whatever, whatever the terms at the time were, because again, I'm not sure the split had officially happened yet. Actually, I'm pretty sure it hadn't, but... Yeah. Anyway. Out of the abundant envy he feels toward you, has ordered the Patriarch of Constantinople uh, to raise the Church of Otranto to the rank of an archbishopric and not to allow the divine mysteries throughout Apulia and Calabria to be celebrated in Latin, but to have them celebrated in Greek.
0: Oh my gosh. All right.
1: He says that the former popes were merchants who sold the Holy Spirit, whereby all things are vivified and ruled, which fills the world, which knows the word, which is co-eternal and consubstantial with God the Father and his Son Jesus Christ without beginning, without end, continually true, which is not valued at a price, but is bought by the clean of heart for as much as they deem it worth.
0: I'm going to say one word as commentary here, and then I promise
1: I'll leave it alone. Indulgences. Right? Yeah, no, that's a very valid criticism.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Like, hello?
1: Yeah, a lot of the heads of your church were basically merchants who sold the Holy Spirit. Oh, gosh. Get with it. Also, you seem awfully accustomed to luxury for a bishop. Have you considered where you stand in that?
0: Mister, I only want to wear purple.
1: Also, I like that he dropped co-eternal and consubstantial.
0: Yes. Yeah, he had to throw those in there. See, okay, again, I wonder, was this a translation thing? Or was this in there? It's probably in there in, in the original.
1: Oh, yeah, I I assume it was the, the whole uh, co-eternal consubstantial thing was very much on people's minds. That oh, was, yeah, the, that was like, part of the whole, um, a lot of the really silly heresies of the time. Where just people arguing over semantics about that sort of thing.
0: Oh, for As sure. As I'm sure
1: you know more about than I do, but I'm <laughs> talking for our listeners.
0: Yeah, I do, I do enjoy those arguments. If you're ever looking for a really good read about that, it's more Renaissance than it is medieval, but it's the Marburg Colloquy where Zwingli and Luther are basically sitting across from each other at this table trying to come to an agreement about transubstantiation versus consubstantiation versus symbolism. And they're trying to derive, you know, what does is mean here in this sentence? And, you know, spirit doesn't eat flesh. Spirit consumes spirit and blah, 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 blah. But that that's a funny read because they do get heated about it. And whoever, like, the, the court, you know, accountant was wrote down how they were acting as well as what they said. So it's a great read. It's hilarious.
1: It does sound fun.
0: Anyway, so he's doing the whole consubstantiation right, right. sermon in there.
1: If that's... Seriously, like a third of the page was just, um, add-ons to the phrase the Holy Spirit. Oh, of course. So, Polyuctus, the patriarch of Constantinople, has written to the Bishop of Otranto, giving him power under this authority to consecrate bishops in Acarinza, Terci, Gravina, Matera, and Tricarico, all sees which evidently belong to the jurisdiction of our apostolic pope. That's sees with two E's, listeners, not E-A. Mm-hmm. But why need I say that when the Church of Constantinople itself is properly subject to our holy Catholic and Apostolic Church of Rome? We know, nay, we have seen, that the Bishop of Constantinople only wears the pallium by permission of our Holy Father. But when the godless Alberic, filled by cupidity not in drops but in torrents, I like that phrase, Mm -hmm. laid claim to the city of Rome and held the Apostolic Pope like a slave in his dwelling, the Emperor Romanus made his own son, the eunuch Theophylactus, the patriarch. Knowing Alberic's stupidity, he sent him handsome presents and got a letter dispatched to the patriarch Theophylactus in our pope's name, giving him and his successors authority to wear the pallium without further papal permission. The result of that shameful transaction has been the growth of the custom whereby not only the patriarchs but all the Greek bishops now wear the pallium. Incidentally, this is supposedly still, like... Leopran telling Otto what God told Lupran, but he seems to have gotten off on like a history tangent.
0: Yeah. Well, this would be an affront that everybody gets to wear a pallium.
1: Oh well, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 definitely uh, offensive to his beliefs. Oh, for sure. How absurd that is goes without further remark. Yeah.
0: <laughs> for well, we need to give it a further remark, but yes. culturally, he
1: doesn't. It is therefore my proposal. I thought it was God's proposal to you, Fran, to get your story straight. Well,
0: no, he's making a new proposal.
1: Ah. That a sacred synod be held to which Polyuctus shall be summoned. If he be unwilling to come and refuse canonically to amend the above stated faults, then let that be done which the sacred canons decree. Listeners, that's, that's canon with two ends, not canon with three ends. although the idea may be the same.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, what's the punishment for this, excommunication, or...
1: It might be execution, in which case it might be uh, both the canon's two ends and canon's three ends declaring that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, most mighty emperors, continue the work you have begun? If Nicéphorus will not obey us, when we proceed to convict him canonically, see to it that he hears from you, whose armies the old corpse does not dare to face. Oof. This, I say is what the apostles, our masters and fellow soldiers, wish us to do. The Greeks must not hold Rome a place of no account, because Constantine left it. It must rather receive especial love, veneration, and respect, inasmuch as the apostles, the holy teachers, Peter and Paul, came there. May what I have written on this matter suffice, until by the grace of God and the holy apostles' prayers I escape from the hands of the Greeks and return to you. I hope then it will not weary me to say, but it irks me now to write. Now, let me return to my subject.
0: <laughs> After this long digression.
1: Right. On the 6th of December, we came to Laocas, where, as by all the other bishops, we were most unkindly received, and treated by the bishop who was a eunuch. <laughs> I don't know why he threw that in there.
0: Just for the shade of it.
1: Yeah. Also, are eunuchs allowed to be bishops?
0: Maybe that's why he's putting it in there.
1: In all Greece, I speak the truth and do not lie, I found no hospitable bishops. They're both poor and rich, rich in gold coins, wherewith they gamble recklessly, poor and servants in servants and utensils. They sit by themselves at a bare little table with a ship's biscuit in front of them, and instead of drinking their bathwater... What? <laughs> are you supposed to? No, I, I think
0: he's trying to say, like, instead of being poor and pious, they're all gambling and, you know, spending money.
1: Yeah, although he's, he's also saying, like, they live simply, I don't know... I don't know. Anyway, sorry, it's been a while since I've read this, because I read it to prepare for it, to, for uh, us reading it, but that was like months ago because we yeah. took a break. And this this phrase just blindsided me. <laughs> uh, instead of drinking their bath water, they sip it from a tiny glass.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, I think the point is, is that they're putting on airs.
1: Could be. They do their own buying and selling. They close and open their doors themselves. They Their own stewards, their own ass drivers, their own capones, which is in uh, quotation marks. Mm. And then M-dash. Aha! I meant to write capones, C-A-U-P-O-N-E-S. But the thing is so true that it made me write the truth against my will. Oh, wow. <laughs> there, capones, or capones, I don't know which one. That is eunuchs, which is against canon law. Okay, so it's not allowed.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: And they are also cowpones or cowponies. Again, I don't know how to say it. That is innkeepers, which is, again, uncanonical.
0: Oh, my. So he's like, haha, look at how clever I am for making this pun.
1: Right. Like, oh, my hand slipped and I accidentally wrote the truth. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, no. And then everybody clapped.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is true of them to say, and this is from Marshall, Of old, a lettuce ended the repast. Today, it is the first course and the last.
0: Another good little quotable.
1: I I suppose. I don't know what to do with this. If their poverty imitated that of Christ, I should judge them happy in it. But their reason is sordid gain and the accursed hunger for gold. I like that he's criticizing them for living simple lives, but he's saying it's just so they can hold on to their gold and not spend it. May God be merciful to them. I think that they act thus because their churches are tributary to the state. The bishop of Leucas swore to me that his church had to pay Nikephorus a hundred gold pieces every year, and the other churches the same, more or less, according to their means. How unjust this is, is shown by the enactments of the holy patriarch Joseph. At the time of the famine, he made all Egypt pay tribute to Pharaoh, but the land of the priests he allowed to be exempt. I feel like Mewkrant has uh, some special reasons that he wants bishops and the priests to be exempt from taxation.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. You don't say.
1: (laughs) Leaving Leucas then on the 14th of December and sailing the ship ourselves, for the crew, as we said above, had run away. I thought you made them walk by the side of the boat.
0: Well, then they deserted everybody. (laughs) Ugh. This guy.
1: Yeah, he definitely doesn't. Refer to them leaving until now. So, oh my gosh! <laughs> unless I'm missing it.
0: No, I don't think you missed it.
1: On the 18th, we arrived at Corfu. There, even before we left the ship, we were met by a certain captain called Michael, who was a Chersonite from Cherson. Seems redundant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he was a gray-haired man, jovial-looking and of merry conversation, but as it afterwards proved, a devil in heart. Oh, no. As God showed to me, even then by clear signs, if only I had had the wit to understand them. At the very moment when he was giving me the kiss of peace, which in his heart he did not mean. Oh, my gosh. All the great island of Corfu trembled. And not only once, but three times on the same day, it trembled to its base. Earthquake, I think is what he's saying. Yes. Moreover, four days later, on the 22nd of December, while I was breaking bread at table with a man who was treading me underfoot, the sun, ashamed of his disgraceful conduct, hid the rays of his light and suffering an eclipse that terrified Michael, but did not change him. Uh oh I will explain what I did for him in the way of friendship and what I received from him in recompense. On my way up to Constantinople, I gave his son the costly shield, gilded and wonderfully ornamented, "'which you, my august masters, had given me with the other presents I was to bestow upon my Greek friends. "'On this occasion, returning from Constantinople, I gave the father a very expensive cloak, "'and this is all the thanks I got. "'My Kephrys had written that at, what, at whatever hour I should arrive, "'he should put me on a fast galley and send me on to the Chamberlain Leo. "'He did not do this, but kept me there for twenty days, "'I, not he, paying for my food.' until at last a messenger came from the aforesaid Chamberlain Leo, rating him for delaying me. Unable to endure my reproaches, lamentations, and sighs, he went away and handed me over to a fellow so utterly sinful and bad that he did not even allow me to buy supplies until I gave him a cauldron worth a pound of silver. After twenty days, I got away, but the man who had had my cauldron ordered the ship's captain, after passing a certain promontory, To put me ashore and let me die of hunger.
0: (laughs) This is like Odysseus trying to get back home. (laughs) He's writing another odyssey here.
1: He did this because he had turned over my cloaks to see if I had any purple cloth concealed. And I had refused to give him the one he wanted. Oh, you Michaels, you Michaels. Where have I ever found so many of you together and such ones? The fellow at Constantinople who had charge of me was a Michael, and he handed me over to a rival Michael. Bad to worse, rascal to rogue, my guide was also called Michael. A simple man indeed, but one whose saintly simplicity harmed me almost as much as did the other's perversity. But from the hands of these puny Michaels, I fell into yours, oh monstrous Michael, half hermit, half monk.
0: He's just got a thing with Michael, huh? I guess. Oh, wow.
1: I tell you, and I tell you truly... The bath water will not avail you, which you drink so assiduously for the love of St. John the Baptist. Those who seek God falsely never merit to find him. And that's the end.
0: Oh, that's the end.
1: That's the end.
0: Oh, wow. So he does this whole thing. And then he ends about this. He ends on a tirade of Michael's. Yes. Oh, my. Like, forget Nicephorus. This guy. (laughs) right oh my gosh
1: to be fair if he really was left on a rock to starve i kind of get why he's extra angry about that
0: true like he had a bad trip yeah but oh gosh what a mess i'm starting to think that they actually drank their own bathwater, though
1: yeah i'm starting to get there or maybe they maybe it's like the baptismal water i don't know but Maybe there was, like, a thing about drinking bathwater, but I don't know what it may have been.
0: I mean, the whole piousness thing sort of makes sense. Waste not.
1: Yeah, no, that tracks. Yeah. And I guess that, like, no, I was gonna say that they weren't they wouldn't be so aware of, like, germs and such at the time. Right. But also, since they didn't bathe as often back then, I'm sure the bathwater tasted even worse. Ew.
0: That was probably the point, though, to be fair. Ew it just seems gross. Okay. Well, that's a that's a heck of a travel
1: log. Yep.
0: <laughs> what are the big takeaways from this text in your view?
1: Um, <laughs> my main takeaway is that medieval bishops could be incredibly petty and catty.
0: Yeah, that's that's basically what I'm getting here. Oh. What a shame, too. So apparently the food sucked and anybody named Michael sucks and mm-hmm. You can't wear purple.
1: Also, Michael is ugly. I mean, not Michael. Nykephras is ugly. He was very clear on that. Oh, yeah,
0: we did figure that out. He was a dwarf. (laughs) Yes.
1: Which, as far as I know, is not true.
0: No, there's no reason for it to be true. I can't believe he didn't die after writing all of this stuff, especially with the poem. Like, they let him right? go at the end? They didn't kill him?
1: I feel like they were treating him much more politely than he claimed if they didn't execute him for this. Oh,
0: for sure. Especially after writing a poem like that. It's like, well, what can you do? He's a foreign ambassador. It's like, no, kill him. You can kill him. You can do that.
1: Like, if they were anywhere near as terrible as he claims, he, he would have been executed.
0: hmm Oh, wow. Well, that's that. Yep. All right. Should we go through our segments here? Let us. Okay. What well, say you? Best dialogue.
1: Oh, dear.
0: I'm torn between the initial description of Nicephorus and the rant about the Michaels. Because, on one hand, the rant is so specific about how he looks and how he acts and what they're all wearing and how terrible this place is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it makes sense because he's like the rival king. But on the other hand, the rant about the Michaels is so petty, and it's so generalized. It's just every Michael in every direction, just we don't like him.
1: Right. They're all all bad.
0: Especially that one Michael. There's also the competition of the asses.
1: That is pretty funny, I'm (laughs) gonna say. I do really appreciate the whole time when he's arguing with the young princes, but I feel like that's not... There's not really a good quotation to pull out of that. I just like the, the image of him arguing with two young children.
0: Oh, yeah. That's a fantastic image. Even though there's not one singular line. Yeah. Plus the kissing imagery is just so
1: strange. In my opinion, I think the best dialogue or at least the best like line is Leopran's imagining of what they should say uh, when Nikephorus is in the parade.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. he just reels
1: yeah. off that whole list of insults.
0: Yes. Okay, we'll go with that one. That one's great. d d How do we apply this to D&D? <laughs> Aside from having, like, your, your players could pick up one of these letters and it just is a really long list of insults. Mm-hmm. Or you could, you know, if your players are in a different nation or however you have it set up, there's just a really persnickety religious official from a different country who thinks that this place sucks.
1: That would be a really fun NPC to That's include. So is basically Liu
0: Yes. Oh, this sucks. Why is there onions in everything and it's all covered in fish sauce? It's like you do realize we live on the coast, right? <laughs> right. There's fish in everything.
1: They basically live on an isthmus yeah they're they're surrounded by sea
0: no having a leoprand as an npc would be i think hysterical and i mean you could turn it into a quest if you wanted to you could have your players be the ambassadors or have to protect this ambassador who just won't shut up about how awful everything is he's like i can't believe i have to pay for you guys i have to pay for your room and board so you could turn that into its own little quest and just yeah. just see if your players kill him off before anyone else does. Because <laughs> he's so annoying. Anything else for D&D?
1: If any of your players are, say, knights, or any kind of nobility, or if they have any kind of noble background, you could have them go on a quest that is just, you have to convince this king to give uh, his daughter in marriage to my son.
0: There you go. Yeah.
1: And then they can be Brand and <laughs> it can actually be inhospitable.
0: Yeah, you can you can determine how inhospitable the nice analog is. Mm-hmm. It's also a really good way to do religious conflict. It's true. If you're into that in your own D&D universe, you, you can create a lot of cultural tension with something like this. Any kind of ambassador and ambassadorial position.
1: If your players is by passage on a ship, you can have them cheated and extorted by some guy named Michael.
0: There you go. You can always use the Michael <laughs> trope. I feel like we ought to have a, a recurring. Who is the Michael in this story? What is the Michael trope here? <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, there's a lot of great NPCs you could you could create here.
1: Oh, man. NPCs you should totally include? The kids.
0: Oh, definitely. Definitely. There's a kid like this in Skyrim. Actually, he just is begging to get killed. He says, oh, another traveler here to lick my father's boots. Good job. It's like, dang, I want to kill you so much because you're such a little brat. So you can always include these kids.
1: Yeah, kids who are preternaturally like snotty and high handed for being, again, eight and ten years old, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but talking like adult monarchs. (laughs) Oh dear! All right. Oh, me tattoos.
0: Here we go. Who do we want in our D and D party here? <laughs> no one. We, we might
1: have. have to skip this yeah, one too. We don't I don't, want don't think we had. <laughs> Yeah. None of these people.
0: Okay. Okay. So let's let's adapt this. If this is like a band of villains who you would go and attack instead of a party.
1: Honestly, if I were creating a group of evil NPCs, I think it would be really, really easy to base it on uh, the royal family in Nykephras' royal family. Yeah. Because you've got him, you've got his wife, Theophano, who may or may not have murdered her previous husband. Yep. That's not really touched on in here, but in other uh, texts it is.
0: Yeah, fair enough.
1: You've got the two kids who, as mentioned, terrible. yeah. Yeah. And the daughter, who also doesn't show up in the text, is a very male-centered text. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, like, there's a lot you could do there with, like, you've got at least one femme fatale, you've got this old, grumpy warrior who's just a total (laughs) dick to everyone, and you've got these snotty little kids.
0: Oh, man. Yeah, that that would check out. Or, I think it would be great, because instead of having two sides where it's difficult to choose who lives, you just hate both sides. So you've mm. got Nice royal family and then you have the ambassadorial crew who's led by this guy who's a total prick. And so then your players are like, we don't like either of you. We don't want either of you in charge.
1: At least one group of GM would have opted to enact some sort of coup just yeah.
0: to <laughs> stick it to everyone. That would work. That would work. That's an option. I love... Tabletop games, because anything goes Mm -hmm. You can do anything Well, there we go, okay, so instead of having a a comi Tattoos, we've got a, you know Big bad evil guy party for you guys
1: I do actually really like the idea Now of having Nikephorus and his royal family as NPCs
0: I think that'd be hilarious Now let's sit at the kitchen table Food! Well... (laughs) We have a lot of onions, leeks, and garlic and fish sauce, <laughs> which apparently is all the rage in Constantinople.
1: And also a fat goat.
0: Oh, yes. Fat goat.
1: That That's what all these things are being served. With. In. Yes. Yeah.
0: So fat goat and garlic with fish sauce. To be fair, that doesn't sound entirely appealing.
1: I'm not a big fan. No. Also, just just the the phrase here that I've pulled when he was describing the dinner. Yes. During which disgusting and foul meal, which was washed down with oil after the manner of drunkens, and moistened also with a certain other exceedingly bad fish liquor.
0: Oh, that's right. The fish liquor.
1: Which may be fish sauce also, but maybe a drink.
0: I don't want to think about how it would be a drink. Well, I mean,
1: you can make liquor from potatoes. Maybe you can also make liquor from fish.
0: I'm sure you can make (laughs) liquor from fish. I just don't want to think about it. (laughs) Ew. But there we go. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yep. Fish liquor. That's also in there. (laughs) (laughs) Put that in your D&D campaign.
1: Oh, God. That sounds awful.
0: Ugh. Although that would be great for any coastal town where the local custom is to have a a fish liquor wash down Mm. sort of thing. And then you have to make your players roll constitution saving throws for how disgusting it is. Oof.
1: DC 10 not to just throw it back up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. What kind of terminology are we stealing from this text?
1: If anyone can figure out what it means to sew pillows under your arms, you can use that.
0: Yeah, whatever that means. And then we had another one. What was the other one? As dumb as a fish?
1: Yes, as dumb as a fish. Dumb as a fish. As in speechless, not stupid, to be clear. Yes. Also, before we leave, this is the passage I put forth as best dialogue that I think also includes some good stuff. So any part of this, I think, could make... Excellent items for the dictionary. As Nikephorus, like some crawling monster, walked along, the singers began to cry out in adulation. Behold, the morning star approaches, the day star rises, in his eyes the sun's rays are reflected. Nikephorus, our prince, the pale death of the Saracens. And then they cried again. Long life, long life to our Prince Nikephorus. Adore him, ye nations. Worship him. Bow the neck to his greatness. How much more truly might they have sung? Come, you miserable burnt out coal, old woman in your walk, wood devil in your look, clodhopper, haunter of buyers. goat footed, horned, double limbed, bristly, wild, rough, barbarian, harsh, hairy, a rebel, a Cappadocian.
0: Amazing. Yes. Any and all of that is up for grabs. Especially
1: if you can figure out what double limbed means in this context.
0: Especially gangly could be. Especially if he looks like a dwarf. He's got like super long arms. It's like when you make a Sims character and you can mess with the proportions.
1: I don't think I've played recent enough Sims games to be able to do that.
0: I've only seen pictures. I've never done it. <laughs>
1: But a lot of these, I think, could be good things to throw in. Calling someone the pale death of the Saracens, or the whatever enemy nation. Or insulting someone as being, as looking like a wood devil, or a haunter of buyers. Jeez. All very good, in my opinion.
0: Amazing. Alright, what else have we got? Street smarts! What lessons are we learning from this text, Mac?
1: (laughs) No. (laughs) High society isn't worth it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's true. If you're really going to go for it, write out, not just write out, carve out an insulting poem before you leave.
1: Yes. That is the appropriate way to deal with inhospitable or bad hosts, is to carve insulting poems into their walls.
0: That's one way to do it. Oh my gosh. And then, I don't know, I feel like the overall lesson that we're learning from this text is that everybody has a bias. Oh yes, Everybody has a bias. Like, very clearly, this guy's experience was not what he wrote down. No, about
1: it. no. This must be, like, either wildly embellished or partially made up. Mm-hmm. Like, I- mm-hmm. I'm willing to believe that, like, the overall thrust of the events was pretty similar. But I think a lot of the details are just invented.
0: I think the biggest street smart here, even in less of a humorous way, is more that... This text is a prime example of how important it is to verify what you're Mm -hmm. reading, especially in sort of this era of, you know, dare I say, fake news, and trying to sort through what is true and what we're seeing online. Because what? I mean, what is Twitter and Facebook aside from everybody's angry travel log nowadays?
1: It's true. That fits pretty well.
0: So, (laughs) Be careful what you read and how you read it. Understand that there is a context to everything. And like, you know, there's, there's, he makes this poke at the Venetians, right? And their generals and so on and so forth. So we don't have context for that. And so even as we're looking at our own, you know, social media culture, we don't have the context for all the things that we're seeing. And we can't have the context for all the things that we're seeing. Our world is so much smaller. So yeah, just pay attention to, the voice of whatever you're reading because just because someone purports something to be fact doesn't necessarily th- you mean that it is. And even if they're trying to give an accurate account, everybody has a bias. Yes. So that's, I think that's the biggest street smart we can take away from this one. I think it's very time. Also
1: much narrower is uh, if someone's smuggling fancy clothes for you, don't snitch on them when you're talking to the people who don't want them smuggling fancy clothes to you.
0: Yeah. Also that. Very Actually, true. Let's just
1: sum all that up: to don't snitch.
0: <laughs> Snitches get stitches.
1: Snitches do get stitches.
0: <laughs> also, maybe if you're part of a, a different culture, don't just like throw it back in their face. Maybe try to acclimatize a little bit. Yeah. Don't pick some fights. <laughs> but if you're gonna carve a poem on the wall,
1: also onions and garlic are delicious. Learn to like them.
0: True. Very true. Although onions and garlic plus fish sauce is a lot.
1: I'm really not on board with fish sauce. Even when I ate meat, I couldn't. I Seafood was a no. That's fair. That's I don't like the bad. taste of like virtually anything that comes out of the ocean.
0: That's fair. I feel contractually obliged as an Alaskan to like fish, but I like fish anyway, so that's not very hard for me. <laughs> okay.
1: Best moment.
0: What is your favorite moment from this whole thing?
1: Now, it was really hard to pick out individual bits because it's just it's just a vibe.
0: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> this whole thing is one big vibe. I feel like there's there's like little scenes that he just surrounds with torrents of abuse. Mm-hmm. So there's the scene where Nicephorus is in his procession. There's the dinner scene. There's the Michael rant. And there's the scene with the kids. Those are the big four that I'm thinking of. And there's the ass scene.
1: Though I really like the visual of him having this conversation with young children, I think I've got to say that the best moment is when he carves a poem into the wall.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, that is that is the best, I think. That's great. Yeah, there's really nothing more petty in this entire thing. Like It's not good enough for him to just bring home this letter. Mm-hmm. He also has to carve his thoughts and feelings into the wall and the table of his host's palace.
1: I really want to know whether he carved it twice or if he ran out of space on the wall.
0: I That would be so great. I love that we're also inferring that he carved it. He could have just written it, could but have. the drama of him carving it is so much better.
1: It, way better. Yes. It, it is my head cannon.
0: Oh, yes, for sure. 100%. Okay. Uh, the
1: court. <laughs> you get to pick first.
0: Uh, I don't want to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're all so horrible. Um... And since we're dealing with prominent historical figures, I want to remind you that we've previously decided that if someone shows up in multiple texts, if you pick them for your court, you get the version of them from that text.
0: Yes, not the historical person. Yeah. Oh, man. The Nicephorus in this text is horrible. And our main character, what's his name? Leo?
1: The spelling changes a lot, but- Oh, boy. It's Leoprand, and sometimes Liu Prand. there is- one of many different consonants in between those two syllables. Oh
0: boy. Well, Leo for short. He's also terrible, and I don't like him either. So I'm going to pick Michael the Swindler.
1: <laughs> That's fair. That's probably the best option.
0: Because <laughs> he's the only one. Like he's He's cheeky enough to swindle a bishop, which I've got to applaud him for. So I'm going to pick Michael the Swindler. Just because everyone else is so terrible.
1: Yeah. I'm trying to decide between a couple options, and I'm actually scrolling a bit, because I'm, I am I want to check something real quick.
0: Okay. I feel like I can't remember everybody, but I've made my choice.
1: Yeah, I would take Theophano, but she never actually shows up in the text. She's just mentioned in passing a couple times. I don't think yeah, that's, that's right. good enough.
0: And what what are we calling this text so I can put it in our uh,
1: It's the tracker. Embassy to Constantinople is how it's usually oh, titled. I was just skipping around to see if any of the eunuchs that showed up in the text were interesting, but they're not. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take the older of the two princes. Okay. I guess we would have to write him down as Basil II, but it's Basil II as a child, so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: As an adult, he's pretty impressive, but again, we've already established that you get the version <laughs> from the text.
0: Oh my gosh. This is great. Okay. Well, there we go. There's our our additions to the court. I like how neither one of us wanted to pick one of the main characters here because they're such terrible people.
1: Both Leuprant and Nikephorus remind me way too much of modern politicians, and I don't want them.
0: That's so valid.
1: Like, because Leuprant is prissy and petty and awful, and Nikephorus is just, like, destroying his country in order to fund the military.
0: I just want to remind you here that we have previously picked both Julius Caesar and Pompey. And we would rather have them, both of whom did pretty terrible things.
1: True, but they were at least impressive about it.
0: Yes, that's true. These guys are just, you know, two-bit messengers and bad kings.
1: Yeah. Oof. Okay. Final rating. You pick first. Oh
0: boy. This one was pretty entertaining. I really enjoy all the drama. There were, I feel, a I feel like there were a couple parts that dragged just a little bit because you're like, okay, Leo, come on, like, get Mm. over yourself. Let's get going. very wordy. Very wordy. But overall, very fun read. So I'm going to give it – I'll give it a 7.5, I think.
1: I will actually agree with you there on all points. I will will give it a 7.5, and I also agree that he is way too wordy at times. Yeah. If it weren't for the fact the whole charm of this text is – the way it's presented, rather than the events, I would have summarized it.
0: Oh, yeah, exactly. You have to read the whole thing. Yeah. And it does get a little wordy.
1: Yeah, because again, the whole thing is just a vibe, and you can't mm-hmm. get that if you don't do the whole thing.
0: Yeah, you can't You can't really summarize it. Alrighty.
1: Welcome to the Leech's Corner. Uh, this is from book two of the Leech book.
0: Okay. Which body part are we covering here?
1: Book two starts over again at the top, because it's they're like two oh. separate texts. Okay. And this is only chapter five of book two, so we're still on the head. Okay. In specifically, the jaw. Oh, the jaw. All right. A leechdom for swelling of the maw. One shall in the morning hours squeeze hard the man's feet and hands, and one shall bid him cry or sing very loud. And one shall exhort him after his night's fast, and provoke him to spew, and in the morning smear him with oil, on which has been sodden rue and wormwood, and let him diet on the before-named foods. Because this is right after a chapter where they list, like, all the, all the foods that are healthy.
0: Right. And what is this to, to fix?
1: A swollen jaw. Okay. Or maw, as they say here. M-A-W. Yes. But I, I assume jaw, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, so you're supposed to squeeze their feet and hands, make sure that they either cry or sing very loudly, Mm -hmm. make them throw up in the morning, and then cover them in oil in which you have soaked rue and wormwood. It sounds very unpleasant.
0: I feel like that's just to distract from the jaw pain. I don't know what part of this actually would help, unless you're, like, trying to pop a jaw. Like, you know when you get a really bad earache? and your jaw hurts, and you have to just pop your ears.
1: That could be it. That Maybe that's why they at, you're, they're supposed to sing very loud. It's like maybe you're just stretching it. Yeah. See if that helps. You, know, you
0: gotta pop it. That's the only thing I can think yeah. of here. That's it. That's all I've got. <laughs> I don't know why the oil would help. I don't...
1: Makes you smell like licorice.
0: I guess.
1: Or at least I assume that's what wormwood smells like, because that's what absinthe smells like.
0: Well, you you know pop your ears and smell like licorice with this remedy?
1: there you go. Seems
0: harmless enough, so if you want to try it,
1: (laughs) you can let us know. If you wake up with a swollen jaw, have someone squeeze your hands and feet, and then smear yourself with wormwood oil.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. It'll definitely distract you from the jaw pain. Yes. At minimum. Okay. Anything else to cover?
1: I think that's all I'm
0: Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, the Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Well,
1: now the dog wants attention from me. Uh Oh. Uh-huh. Oh, good dog. What is it? Hmm?